Hey guys, welcome to the Freedom to Flourish podcast. This is Dr. Joel Miller here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Tim Augustiniak. Uh, with episode seven here, we're jumping into gut health part two. Uh, if you uh, didn't uh, already listen to episode six, we started with gut health part one, and we really talked about a lot of very important things and, and uh, really got into it. Uh, so we're excited for part two here. We're going to get into um, uh, the rest of the gut stuff and really try to kind of provide just a comprehensive, just overview of gut health and uh, from the, the functional medicine, natural, holistic approach with things, talking about what causes these issues, how to address them naturally, how to heal from them and all that fun stuff. So um, let's kind of, we'll go through a recap here, but Dr. Tim, how's, how's your day going? How's everything there in Arkansas? It's going good. It's believe it or not, down here in the south, it gets cold too. Um, it is, I think, nine degrees right now, and everybody here is complaining about it. Uh, being yeah. from Michigan and previously living in Minnesota for the third snowiest winter in yeah. recorded history in Minneapolis. Yeah, uh, this really isn't much. So it's kind of funny yeah. here. Everybody's uh, changing perspective down here. Um, yeah. I walked in my office this morning and it was about 58 or 59 degrees because the heater wasn't working. So oh, no. luckily I turned it off and turned it back on and, and the furnace got kicked on again. So okay, good deal. Um, yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and we were both in Missouri, obviously, for school there. And uh, and I'd been in Kansas for a little bit. So um, not as intense, I would say, as Michigan and Minnesota, but you know, definitely some snow. So here in Texas, we got like half an inch uh, over these past few days. I can't remember if I shared this with you uh, just in our conversations, but yeah, I got half an inch and I'm, I'm driving. It's just normal. It's like nothing, you know, even uh, concerning to me. And uh, I'm seeing like nobody on the road here down here in Texas. And for the people that are on the road, the majority of them are driving like 15 miles under. So it's like, it's pretty comical. Um, and then I had some, I had some patients reschedule and stuff too, because of the, the weather. I'm like, all right, that's fine. You know? yeah, so, all right. <laughs> awesome. So let's jump into real quick, uh, just a recap, real quick recap of, uh, part one and what we got into, uh, with gut health. Dr. Tim, uh, took us through an awesome kind of, uh, walkthrough of digestion as we call it digestion A to Z talking about how food starts with actually seeing it and smelling it. And then of course the whole digestive process going through our digestive system. Uh, we walked through a lot of the drivers of gut health issues. So, um, of all the gut health issues we talked in, in about in part one, primarily heartburn, um, uh, stomach ulcers, gallstones, constipation, um, and a, and a few other things in there like leaky gut things we talked about there. Um, we talked about the drivers of all of these gut issues. We talked about infections, foods, chemical exposure, some autoimmune stuff. And so uh, between those different drivers, between those different conditions, we talked about if any of those interest you would definitely recommend going back and, and listening to those. But in part two here, we're going to jump into kind of the lower GI um, and uh, gut issues. So specifically, we'll go through bloating. We're going to go through gas and diarrhea, um, abdominal pain, which is actually a, a pretty huge issue and one that uh, we see people have a lot of issues with just kind of through the standard healthcare system. Um, bleeding issues, gluten allergies. Uh, we'll get a little into uh, our, some of our favorite foods and then we'll, we'll kind of walk through some, some of the common questions we get with, with gut issues. So uh, Dr. Tim, without further ado, let's, let's get rolling with bloating. Um, 
patients come in with bloating all the time. Walk us through kind of what causes that, what your thoughts are on it, and, and what they can do to kind of start addressing those things. Okay, so bloating is very often where people will, you know, they say, I'm feeling bloated because after I eat whatever foods, I look like I'm pregnant. I just get all this gas in what seems to be kind of the middle of the, di of the digestive tract. Uh, I've had plenty of women come into the office and kind of just show their stomach like they're showing off a baby bump or something. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it sounds kind of funny, but it's a very, it's a very legitimate thing where a lot of people will struggle with this gas buildup in the small intestine. Um, and it is very, very inconvenient. I'm sure it's not something that I've struggled with, but it's, it's difficult for people to deal with. And a lot of people that end up going down this road, they just reach fr frustration at some point where that's what brings us or brings them to our offices. Uh, they've been through the ringer with the medical profession who they'll do. I've got this one girl, she's done, um, she's done CT scans, full abdominal ultrasound, all that stuff. Yeah. Everything is totally fine, but she's got this chronic bloating issue, bladder um, yeah. issues, motility issues, all those things. Uh, luckily we've gotten things mostly resolved, but, um, the bloating, the bloating is still something that tends to nag a little bit. So bloating can be, it can be troublesome for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, so what drives bloating or what bloating is, so bloating will occur when there are certain foods that interact with the microbiome that happens to be in the small intestine too soon in digestion. So most people understand the microbiome as being housed in the large intestine. So you will get bacteria, fungus, those things that are in there that will help aid in digestion of foods, all that stuff and help prepare it for excretion. Um, but what can happen is, so there's this valve. The valve is between your large intestine, it's where they meet and come together. Uh, it is called your ileocecal valve. It's just a little bundle of muscle and it will open up and allow food or digestive material to get through from the small intestine to the large intestine. Uh, when this valve comes dysfunctional, it actually kind of stuck open functionally. And so what can happen there is the microbiome of the large intestine will kind of poke through and make its way into the small intestine. When this happens, bloating can happen because food is interacting with that microbiome too soon in digestion. Um, there's, there's a few other ways that this can happen. One of those is, uh, you know, let's go back to the upper GI stuff, low stomach acid. So you're, Dr. Joel, you touched on this a little bit when we recorded the previous episode. Um, the acidic environment of your stomach is your body's first defense against things like food poisoning, parasites, all that stuff. And so if there's anything that is able to make its way through there and enter the digestive tract, it can really disrupt the microbiome. And so say you have low stomach acid and you have something that has a little bit of some, some bacteria in there that's not supposed to be there. Once that reaches your small intestine and if it survives to that point, it can then begin to replicate and permeate throughout the small intestine, which is what leads to chronic inflammation and all those things. Uh, and over time, it's going to grow enough to where when it does interact with food that you're eating, it starts to produce gas. And because yeah. it's smack dab in the middle of your digestive tract where it's in the small intestine, where it's got the large intestine below it, there's a stomach above it, it's going to be very, very difficult to get rid of that. It's not like you're going to be able to burp or, you know, do the opposite to get it out. Um, right. It's just going to kind of hang out there and, and be really, really frustrating. Um, so those are pretty much the two avenues that this can occur. It's either the large intestine microbiome creeps into the small intestine or mm -hmm. something enters the body through eating 
and disrupts it that way through food poisoning or even just a minor little bit of something uh, that disrupts the microbiome. So what makes you susceptible to the ileocecal valve being dysfunctional can be things like even if you had a little bit of food poisoning, of course, that's going to cause a disruption in the microbiome anyway. But uh, stress, stress is a very, very, very big one there where anytime there's stress, there's this, there's this umbrella term for uh, autonomic dysfunction where you have your divisions, the autonomics, the nervous system. Um, most people, if you've you know taken any, any sort of psychology class over time, you know, throughout your high school or college days, you'll understand that there's the autonomic nervous system and there's two divisions. There's the sympathetic side, which is your fight or flight response. And then there's the parasympathetic side. Your parasympathetic side is your rest and digest. So by that, when parasympathetic tone goes up, your body encourages rest and encourages healing and encourages digestion and nutrient absorption and all those things. Uh, but when you're in your fight or flight state where there's more sympathetic dominance, that's where just the digestive functions stop or slow at the very least. When this happens, the communication with the digestive tract and all those things will kind of get disrupted and uh, the valves can just become dysfunctional. So you can get, like we talked about in the other podcasts, like a hiatal hernia. You can get where ileocecal valve dysfunction occurs. You can get where um, there's disruption of the uh, Houston's valves along the uh, left side of the lower, lower intestine. Um, handful of things that can happen. But one of the biggest things that it can cause is uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or small intestinal fungal overgrowth where uh, that microbiome creeps from the large intestine up to the small intestine and that drives that bloating. So um, all in all, that's that's pretty much it for bloating. Um, there's a few other things I, I should add. Um, I guess this kind of goes hand in hand with just dysbiosis in the large intestine or any sort of gas as well, where whenever there is decreased motility, food and digested material is going to hang out in the digestive tract a little bit too long. Whenever things hang out in the digestive tract too long, it gives it more time to ferment. And so that can lead to bloating and, and gas and all those things as well. Uh, one of the biggest things, and we talked about this in the other podcast, is uh, a decrease in one neurotransmitter reduction, but then also a decrease in gallbladder function where there's sluggish bile. All those things play into it. And I know I'm touching back to that previous podcast a lot, but a lot of these things, because it is the same track that goes all the way through, they're not mutually exclusive. It's not like there's just one issue that you can usually just solve and you're, you're good to go. Uh, a lot of times there are uh, a combo of things that play into stuff or a combo of triggers that you have to hit things with an angle. But for the most part, bloating is a small intestine issue from either consuming something that's not good, disrupting the microbiome, or uh, autonomic dysfunction of that ileocecal valve that's leading to microbiome moving into the small intestine. Um, the way that we go about dealing with this is through uh, just antimicrobial herbs for the most part. Um, there's some really good ones like neem or noni fruit, uh, golden seal, golden thread, berberines, all of them are pretty good. Um, ocean fruit, all sorts of things are, are pretty good at, at dealing with this. So um, usually how, how I'll see this to help people is uh, we'll, we'll hit things hard with one herb for about two weeks and then we'll move on to the next one hit it for about two weeks and then same thing for a third herb. Typically, this ends up being about a six-week fix where as long as you stay on top of it and you supplement accordingly, it does tend to resolve pretty easily. Um, there are some other things where you have to support the mucosal barrier of the uh, of the small intestine 
with uh, secretory IgA nutrients um, to help build up that mucosal and, and immune barrier that's going on in there. Um, also just natural anti-inflammatories like uh, fish oil, um, curcumin, things like that are, are really, really good for uh, helping heal the gut. Um, but if you don't deal with that underlying inflammatory driver, which is the disruption of the microbiome uh, or the SIBO or CIFO, then it's, it's rather difficult to heal the gut because you're trying to rebuild a house while it's still on fire, essentially. We want to put the fire out with the antimicrobials and then rebuild the house with all the uh, secretory IgA nutrients as well as the essential fatty acids and all the gut healing nutrients. Um, yeah, that, I, I think that kind of covers it for, uh, for bloating. Uh, I think the next topic, what do we got next? We've got um, diarrhea. I'm sorry, gas, just gas. Jumping into, jumping into gas, yeah. Well, you know, gas is, gas is going to be <clears throat> really, really tied in with the bloating, right? Because essentially it's the same type of mechanism. It's just kind of a different part of your digestive tract is, is probably how I, would, how I would phrase that. Thanks, appreciate that. That's how I would phrase that um, or put that into perspective. But so, so with the bloating and gas, I, I generally, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, um, kind of how you'd communicate that with patients, but essentially I'm, I'm generally putting that all into the same category, right? Cause essentially it's gas that is being let off by these different infections, whether it's fungus or bacteria and um, that methane gas coming off. And then of course we have to deal with it. So like you mentioned, if it's kind of in the middle of our abdomen, it just stays there and we feel bloated and terrible. If it's closer to the end of our digestive tract, we have gas that we let off. And then if it's obviously like in our stomach, we're going to have generally more bloating and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I kind of group those together, Dr. Tim, would you just kind of real quick, do you kind of group those together as well? Yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, I think that's why it's so, it flowed so naturally into talking about the gas component, because that is essentially what bloating is. It is just a bill of a gas. Um, and, uh, I mean, there are some other things where, you know, we can talk about burping or about chronic flatulence, things like that, where it is a little bit different than just the bloating that sits in there, but it is that's the overwhelming majority of things that are going to drive bloating as well as gas. Um, there are some food sensitivities, things like that, that for some reason just don't like it. It's a bit of a brain reaction to it that can drive gas as well. But uh, on that, that's, that pretty much wraps it up. Um, they're, yeah. they're, they're kind of one in the same, depending on uh, where you're experiencing it is kind of how we would describe it. Bloating tends to be where it causes the abdomen to swell and all those things. And when you mention gas, a lot of times people think, okay, upper GI where it's burping or lower GI where it's the right, opposite. Right. So, right. so with, with gas and sorry, finish that for me. I just said, hopefully that makes sense to those who are listening at home. Yeah. I think you did a great job explaining that. Yeah. So, so with the gas and bloating, uh, we kind of group those together. Dr. Tim wonderfully walked us through the SIBO and CIFO issues. And so there's a couple of things that I'll, I'll kind of add to that, just some different things to kind of just complement uh, everything that he walked us through. Obviously, you've got the bacterial component, the fungal component. Um, you've got the, the valve and the valve, in, valve integrity. That's really important between the ileocecal valve and, and things like that. And of course, that goes back to our autonomic nervous system, our sympathetic parasympathetic balance. Um, a couple of things that I'll, I'll emphasize, you can have fascial imbalances that really um, reduce the integrity of these valves that we're talking about. And so um, these fascial imbalances can come from 
Uh, it can come from injuries. It can come from just a lot of uh, stress on our fascial system. Uh, it can even come from um, different uh, shoes we're wearing. Um, I've actually had people that have gotten different massages around the abdomen, around the hip flexor muscles. And due to the different connections there, it was it was a massage that wasn't necessarily needed on those muscles. And it actually caused a lot of um, negative impacts on the ileocecal valve and they got super bloated afterwards. So the, the fascial system, the tissues can also be really important when we talk about the nervous system and the balance there. Um, so it's always something to, to kind of keep in mind there. Um, the, the other thing that, you know, I really want to kind of emphasize is that our body functions as a system and it is called the digestive system. So whenever we have these bacterial imbalances or fungal imbalances or overgrowths, it's important to understand the other factors that can contribute to these things. So Dr. Tim talked about the bile health and bile flow. It's also important to understand how hormones can impact these things. Um, so if you have some kind of estrogen dominance issue, um, and that can impact your liver, and then your liver is not necessarily able to cleanse the gut as well, there's a lot of different connections there. And so it's really important to keep overall health um, kind of in mind. Um, different toxins, obviously, like mycotoxins with mold, um, different chemicals we can be exposed to, which we, I talked about that a little bit in a, uh, part one. All of those things are helpful to, to keep in mind when we think about these overgrowths and infections because they can basically change the environment of the microbiome and produce an environment that is um, beneficial for these bacteria to, to grow. Um, and so we have to definitely keep all of those different things in mind as far as just looking at the big picture with things. Um, some patients will often ask about testing, what lab tests we can do and, and how we go about addressing those things. Dr. Tim beautifully walked us through the, just kind of the herbs and um, the kind of the approach with that. Um, as far as testing with labs, um, the GI map is a very basic kind of stool test. It's, it's one of the better stool tests, I would say. Um, there are some other stool tests like the, um, like the gut zoomer that can be helpful. Um, again, the, you know, one of the things that we talk about uh, with our working with patients and helping these patients is the, the tests can often be helpful just to give you a big picture of information, but the tests don't always tell you what's the priority with the gut health. What are the other factors impacting gut health, the gut health? And then, uh, maybe more important, like what herbs are actually needed to help start the healing process here and, and help get these bacteria and fungus kind of back in a balance. So with that, that's where we would love to resort to the, the functional neurology, the applied kinesiology, to really test through and figure out exactly what, what patients need with that. So uh, we found just awesome results with that. Um, the last thing I'll mention on that before we kind of move on, and, and obviously Tim, share any other thoughts that come to mind here, but a lot of times I'll have patients go on a very specific nutrition plan as they're taking the herbs that, we, that they tested for. Um, and the nutrition plan usually revolves around what's called a low FODMAP diet. So essentially with this diet, you're going to avoid foods that are high in what's called FODMAP. It's an acronym. Um, and you're going to avoid those foods that, that are likely to be feeding different bacteria, fungus, and things like that. Um, one of the things I'll also do with patients, though, is I'll test uh, a number of different foods and food groups to figure out if they're maybe more sensitive to some foods than others. So um, sometimes I'll, you know, uh, put them on a low FODMAP, but also check, oh my, you know, it's like, your your bacteria your fungus is feeding off of fructose so like we've got to take a break from we have to take a break from fruit for a couple of weeks um, and so similar to yourself what we'll find is 
you take the right herbs for uh, two, at least two weeks um, and sometimes up to three or four weeks, you have the right nutrition plan as far as avoiding the foods that are really contributing to this issue. And we see that these SIBO and CIFO issues, I mean, clear up with, I would say six weeks as being very generous, like like six weeks tops. I would say a lot of times it's, it's much sooner than that. So, um, but just some, just some different thoughts there, some things to kind of think about for the listener, if that's an issue that you're dealing with, or, you know, someone that's dealing with that. And, um, so it's important. You want to have the right herbs, you want to have the right nutrition and, uh, you follow that, um, very specifically addressing these issues should, you know, they can resolve themselves rather, rather quickly. Um, Dr. Tim, any other thoughts on that? If not, let's jump into, um, let's jump into our next, next kind of topic here of just diarrhea. Yeah, let's uh, let's just get right into it. Um, so, do you want me to take diarrhea, or are you going to take it? Uh, yeah, I'll take it. Uh, yeah, I'll grab it. Yeah, it's all good. I'll grab it. Yeah. So, with diarrhea, um, there's a lot of different things that can cause diarrhea. Um, I would say the the thing by and large that I find with patients is going to revolve all around um, infections. It's going to it's going to revolve all around infections. Now, you can have different food sensitivities. You can have inflammation. Um, you can simply have, um, you know, other factors like high stress hormones, cortisol issues, things like that, that contribute. Um, but by and large, it's going to be an issue with infections and the, the kind of the mechanism behind that, that I found is you, you have right before the rectum, um, kind of a series of, uh, the distal parts of your colon, it's called the valve of Houston or, or the valves of Houston. What's interesting, if you look at the anatomy, they're not necessarily valves, um, but they've kind of been given that term regardless. And essentially, whenever there's some kind of dysfunction with that valve in that it's uh, lost some of its integrity, it's staying open, if you will. A lot of times I find a lot of different diarrhea type issues there. Um, now it's important to understand and remember that the large intestine is going to be absorbing a lot of the water as our bowels kind of form and pass through. So if you have any kind of, uh, issue with the large intestine in general, whether it's some kind of parasite infection, some kind of fungal overgrowth, uh, or even bacteria, um, a lot of times that can, uh, that can definitely contribute to things. So, um, I would say infections is definitely something you want to look out for with the diarrhea type issues. Um, Keep in mind that sometimes supplements can cause these issues, right? If you take too much magnesium, if you take too much vitamin C, uh, it's very common to, to get diarrhea from that. Um, but, um, you know, it's really important, just like we talked about with the SIBO and CIFO, to find the right herbs. Well, number one, find what type of infection or in, if there is one, what type and, and what's going on there. Find the right herbs for that infection. And again, with diarrhea type issues, I mean, uh, if you have the right stuff, it should clear up really quick. Uh, I'm thinking back to a patient I had just a couple of weeks ago. She had had diarrhea for, um, it was like several days. Um, and she's been dealing long-term with some, uh, constipation issues. So she would kind of swing back and forth with things. And, uh, it ended up that she had a ton of different, uh, just parasite infections in her gut. And I think she said it even at one point she was seeing some worms in her stool, which is not always a, a pleasant thing, but, um, got her in and, and we, uh, worked through things and it figured, figured out that she had some parasite infections going on. She started taking the herb that, that she tested for. And I think within a week or so, uh, the diarrhea had stopped and hasn't come back since. So, um, so that's, uh, that's usually kind of the, the story that, that we'll get, uh, working with these diarrhea type cases. 
Um, one thing I'll mention too, because uh, I'm not exactly sure if we've got into this specifically, but irritable bowel syndrome, right? Which Dr. Tim, as you and I know, is kind of a catch-all diagnosis. Uh, if someone goes to their doctor, their GI specialist, and the doctor runs all these tests, can't figure out what's going on, usually they get given a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, all that that means is that your bowels are not super consistent. You might have to go to the bathroom really quickly. You might not be able to control it as well. You might switch from diarrhea to constipation and back and forth. Um, and so it's it's not really a true diagnosis as far as what's going on there. But um, we've had amazing success with irritable bowel syndrome cases um, just because a lot of the time it comes it comes down to infections and sometimes foods as well. So I've seen these be caused simply by parasite infections. I'd say a lot of times I see fungus being an issue. And uh, there's one specific patient case that comes to mind. I had a, a gentleman, he was about 27. He has, uh, would have diarrhea three times uh, every morning, very irritable diarrhea three times every morning before going to work. And it had been like that for years. And he just thought this was, this was how it was going to be for the rest of his life until his mom said, hey, you should go see Dr. Joel and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, and I was glad to tell him that first visit. I said, hey, you don't have to think that. This is not going to be an issue that you're going to have to deal with the rest of your life. And in our first visit there, we figured out that it was a fungal overgrowth in his gut. Um, and there was a couple other things. Obviously, he needed some herbs with that, uh, needed to follow a low FODMAP diet for a couple of weeks. But uh, it was actually coffee as well that was actually like feeding this fungus and kind of um, kind of contributing to it. So that's that's not a food that we generally talk about as far as feeding infections. But um, since it was something that he always has a lot of um, and he's had it for so long, I figured there's some kind of imbalance. There's some kind of interaction with things. So had him stop coffee, had him uh, take a break from all the different foods on the low FOD or the FODMAP uh, kind of diet. And I think his his diarrhea episode stopped within a week and he'd had this for like three plus years. So and he's been doing well ever since. So uh, it's amazing, though, once you you really get to the bottom of issues, you know, I always tell people the body wants to heal itself. We just have to give it what it needs. And when we figure out what the body needs um, and we have the right um, dosages and, and the right nutrition and all those different things, um, the body will heal itself and it starts healing itself immediately when it has what it needs. So um, just again, just kind of wanting to emphasize that component because I think a lot of times sickness is sickness becomes normal. And, uh, and even though it's common, it shouldn't be considered normal. So, um, you know, Dr. Tim, I'm thankful for, for you. I'm thankful for our different colleagues that, you know, we get to help patients actually kind of get over these issues and, and actually find true healing with things. So I get pumped up talking about it anyways. Uh, Dr. Tim, <laughs> anything else you would add to, to that conversation as far as diarrhea goes? No, I think that's good. Um, actually, yeah, there is one thing where, um, <laughs> there is one thing. Um, so we can get every now and then. So you know, we talked about previously that whenever there's a gallbladder issue, um, most of the time it is a constipation issue. And so with IBS specifically, um, there's all the different kinds. There is IBSC, that's constipation. And a lot of times we jump to a gallbladder issue, but there's one thing that can lead to diarrhea that um, heavily involves fat digestion. And that's where there are certain bad fats that cause those valves to be stuck open. Uh, yeah. We can call that like an ileal break where bad fats and uh, you know, trans fats 
things like that will cause the ileocecal valve to be propped open um, and just causes everything to just move right through. Um, and a lot of people, I, I feel that, you know, I, I don't have uh, ample amount of cases that have been experiencing this. Whenever I, I've heard plenty of people in the past talking about how they'll have like gallbladder issues, fat digestion issues, and they, it'll just go right through them. Um, I would be willing to bet it's more so the poor fats that are affecting the valves heavily rather than the fat digestion component. Because whenever it is yeah. a true gallbladder, I always see that it's it's constipation. Um, so yeah. that, at least in my mind, it's that way. So if yeah. you notice that, for those listening at home, if there is, uh, if you do have issues with fat digestion, but things go right through you, I would bet it's more so uh, a bad fats issue um, rather than a, a fat digestion issue. Um, probably an inability for your body to deal with the inflammatory side of the fats rather than absorbing them and processing them properly. So um, yeah, probably so, a bit more involved than just the gallbladder issue or just a strict dysbiosis, probably a combo of both. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Tim, uh, some patients might be wondering, some listeners might be wondering what, um, where are these bad fats coming from? Um, you know, let's talk about things practically just for a second. Uh, where are these where are these bad fats coming from? What what are you generally thinking of when when you hear that question? So bad fats are just compass things like all of your hydrogenated oils. So your I can't believe it's not butter and all that stuff that you buy in the grocery store that's marketed as being healthy. The gym, it's not healthy. Right. Yeah, all that stuff. All of your you know your butters, your your peanut butters, all of your seed oils. So palm oil, canola oil. Um, all those processed oils, if you look up a video of how those are processed, they literally use harsh chemicals to strip the oils out of these seeds and then bleach them before they actually wow. put them into the packaging for you to, to eat them. So do you want to eat chemicals and bleach with your oils? It just doesn't make sense. They were initially put on the market as uh, they were trying to figure out how to utilize the product other processes. Um, that was once used as, or just thrown out. Um, and for the sake of our health as at the population scale, it would probably would have been better if they just kept throwing it out. Um, but that's one, one avenue of it. Another avenue. So most people think that olive oil is really, really good for you. And so what they'll do is they'll cook with it all the time. It is good for you, but not mm. when it's heated past a certain temperature. And I, I mm. wish I off the top of my head knew what temperature that was, but Olive is a low temperature oil. So if you're doing it in like a salad dressing, maybe fitting off some pasta, things like that, definitely good there. But if you're cooking with it and it starts to smoke, it denatures uh, and becomes a uh, essentially trans fat. Where trans fats are exceptionally inflammatory and really, really, really not good for us. So trans fats are huge when it comes to bad fats that can be affecting that uh, ileal break. Um, and... Uh, yeah. What do you think? What other, what other bad fats can there be? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I would say, yeah, I would, you, you covered the big ones. I think just a lot of our household products that people will eat, you know, the, the can't believe it's not butter. Um, you know, I mentioned the GIF, you know, peanut butter and really any, any, um, any foods that you look at the ingredients and it says hydrogenated oils, you want to avoid those like crazy. Uh, because those fats will literally get into your cells and stay there for months. Um, so I think the half-life, do you remember the half-life of hydrogenated oil off the top of your head? I think it's like six months, something like that. It's pretty crazy. Um, I guess I'm not familiar with that. I'll take a word for it. 
No, yeah, that was something Dr. Gene Jimmy was sharing, I think, one time. But um, nonetheless, other fats, I would say fast foods, a lot of, um, you know, we, we talk about the inflammatory seed oils, right? The canola oil, vegetable oils. Obviously, we shouldn't be cooking with those. We should throw those away as soon as possible. We should be cooking with the grass-fed butter, the grass-fed ghee, the beef tallow, grass-fed beef tallow, um, things like that. Coconut oil is really good as well. Um, all of those things we should be cooking with, but the inflammatory seed oils we should be throwing out as soon as possible. Um, and then also with fast food, you know, a lot of times fast food, restaurant food, a lot of times they're cooking with those oils. So, you know, I've, I've even noticed going to a healthy place like Chipotle, um, you know, and they, they even share all the ingredients on the, the bags, I think maybe on some of their cups and things like that. But one of the things that they don't necessarily show is how they might use, um, how they use rice bran oil in preparing some of the foods. And one of the things I personally notice is if I eat there too often, I'll start to get these different um, kind of symptoms uh, that I know I've been exposed to some of these different seed oils. And I know that my fatty acid imbalances are um, kind of causing some issues with things. So um, fast foods, hydrogenated oils, and a lot of our processed foods, restaurant foods, um, those are a lot of the bad fats that we should avoid 100%, 100%. Um, Dr. Tim, what do we got next here? I think we're jumping into abdominal pain. Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump into that. One last thing. So for those at home who are wondering, okay, if I can't eat anywhere, um, how, how do I go about that? Actually, uh, just a couple months ago, I came across this app that you can get. Um, I haven't messed around with the, the pay version, but it's called seed oil scout. Yeah. And so seed oils is very often the term that will encompass all of the bad oils into where, you can actually look and it's got a map where it gives you a color grading of green, yellow, red um, of how good restaurants are and what they cook with. Um, and unfortunately, in my area, there's not a whole lot of good options, yeah. uh, rather yeah. blank and red where there are options. So, but for anybody who's really, really, really wanting to go hardcore on the clean fat route and where they can eat with all that stuff. Uh, seed oil scout is named for that. So not sponsored by them by any means. No. Um, but yeah. it's a useful tool that I think that if you're trying to find healthy, quicker options on the road, not a bad idea to, to look into that yeah. at all. So yeah. if, uh, if I'm at a sit down restaurant, I might ask them to cook things in butter, um, uh, rather than the oil. So you can always try that as well. Obviously their butter is probably not grass fed, but it's better than the oils. Yeah. yeah. You can win. Um, okay. Abdominal pain. Let's get to this one. So, um, abdominal pain can arise from pretty much everything you can have. You know, we talked about ulcers before you can have pain in the stomach from an ulcer. You can have uh, heartburn where that could contribute to pain in the abdomen. You can have a gallbladder attack or stabbing pain in your right upper quadrant of your abdomen where there's a gallbladder issue. Um, sort of dysbiosis. You can have abdominal pain, small intestine, large intestine, whatever it may be. Um, one area that we already mentioned as being a uh, important aspect of gut health is the ileocecal valve. Uh, a lot of people will get palpable tenderness over the ileocecal valve, and we can actually kind of track progress uh, as just all of our indicators that we gather for a patient's health and how things are progressing. We can track that tenderness and just, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and palpate and think, okay, if I'm pushing up on the valve, is that tender? If I push down on the valve, is that tender? If I push straight in, is that tender? Um, and a lot of times throughout our treatment, we can actually see a decrease in tenderness from pre-treatment to post-treatment. Um, and then over time, tenderness should resolve to 
at least a reasonable significant uh, degree uh, as gut inflammation has decreased just because those transition transition points are are very very sensitive to inflammation so um, that's that's a few different avenues that you can go about uh, or see abdominal tenderness or uh, abdominal pain um, some people get even like a like pancreatitis things like that where um, there's an acute issue with the pancreas be, be somebody has gallstones and a gallstone clogs up the uh, the bile duct uh, or the common bile duct where the uh, the pancreatic enzymes as well as the the bile are carried into the small intestine. If you clog that up, everything's going to back up into the pancreas and you get pancreatitis. Uh, yeah. The pancreas can also experience things like infections or um, autoimmunity. So I, I've heard of patients, I uh, haven't experienced it myself, but patients who have um, developed uh, type 1 diabetes that you can actually, as long as it's not a significantly prolonged issue, uh, get some decent pancreatic health back through, through handling things naturally. But um, it's a target for a lot of different things that can arise, at least in the acute stage of infection or pancreatitis or, or whatever's going on uh, with pain that you experience in you, the middle of your abdomen. But then also a lot of people will get mid-back pain with that as well. Um, and then what other, uh, what other abdominal pain can we, can we kind of talk about here? Um, yeah. Um... Oh, appendicitis. So another, yeah. another example, appendicitis. So I wanted to touch on that one uh, for a few different reasons. So a lot of people, um, at least the allopathic side of things, there's not this great understanding of what the appendix does. Um, there are some theories that the appendix is um, necessary for housing, kind of uh, storing some of your microbiome as uh, a little pocket that you they have food poisoning or take antibiotics, things like that, where everything will kind of pass through. But since it's a little offshoot, there's this little pocket of good microbiome that should be housed there. Um, with appendicitis, um, you can get where that becomes inflamed, infected, all those things, and it needs to be removed because you could go septic and have some serious complications. Uh, and I'll, I won't comment on that. Um, if, if there's an emergent situation, you know, the best that we can do is recognize that and tell you, okay, maybe you should go to the emergency room. Go, you'll go ahead and check it out. And then from there, those who are more equipped to deal with that situation can handle that there. Um, but then afterwards, um, you may be more susceptible to things like dysbiosis and disruption of those, of the gut microbiome, those infections and all that. And that's where we kind of come in to, to help regulate that again. But I have seen where the, uh, the appendix can be kind of sensitive to, um, something called like reactions or die-off reactions. So um, if, so at least not, not with how we do things, but there, there are some functional medicine docs that will try to get these die-off reactions when they're dealing with gut bugs. And so what drives these die-off reactions is a buildup of aldehydes. Um, so when your immune system's fighting off all these gut bugs, what will happen is it produces essentially uh, toxic cleaning agents that float throughout your body, uh, that your liver needs to detoxify build up, you can get where you feel, you feel like rundown, fatigued, almost feverish. You can get uh, various skin issues. I've seen where people get mouth sores, maybe their tongue will just hurt. Um, things like that, where it is an indication that there's some aldehyde. Uh, that's just from pulling off the gut bugs. When you really, really, really hammer on things way too fast, way too hard, and you're not supporting your body's ability to detoxify these aldehydes, you can actually get where 
the appendix can't handle it. Um, actually, uh, hopefully she doesn't mind me sharing. I don't think she will. Um, my sister actually, she, she went through and, uh, she was doing a very intense, uh, digestive tract, um, or large intestine detoxification of all, all these micro microbes that she had going on with the dysbiosis. And, uh, it was just way too much, way too fast. And she was using some binders and things like that. And, uh, it, we were kind of thinking that that's what really sprung her appendix type issues. Um, I've passing other people going through these detoxes and, and all those, that stuff and experiencing appendicitis and having to get it removed. But, um, unfortunately it's not something that you can say, okay, this is absolutely what caused it. But, um, when using things like, uh, like binders, a lot of other, uh, functional medicine docs, they, they like these binders because it supposedly grabs onto these things and pulls them out of the digestive tract. I don't, I don't see those. I never see them test for. And I've messed around with a few, um, and I just don't, I don't see them as doing any benefit. Um, it, it would make sense that if something's in there, your body should be able to kill it off. And then whatever byproducts are there, if you get rid of those, you should be, you should be good to go. Just a matter of what is your body's ability to handle and, and kill off what's there. And then from there, deal with the byproducts of that infection. You don't want to overwhelm the system. And whenever you are going way too aggressively at doing that, say, um, whenever you're going at that too aggressively, you, you can get issues. So for example, um, like we were saying, you know, we'll do herb A, then herb B, then maybe herb C if it tests and you still need it. And that's over the course of four to six weeks where we're doing one at a time. If you were to do this really hardcore uh, protocol of clove, rosemary, thyme, um, eucalyptus, um, black pepper, oregano, and then neem, all these things were a lot of a lot of these parasite cleanses and all these supplements that have these names of like candida x and, and i'm not even sure if that's a real thing but all these things that kind of point towards just totally wiping out all these bugs they tend to have all these all sorts of things in it where it's a lot and you're supposed to take a lot of it over the course of just a few weeks and if you're really wiping out that much stuff way too quick even if you do one herb at a time you can get aldehyde buildup because People don't walk into our offices with one issue that just started. We, we see people that are healthy, but have some unhealthy aspect. They're healthy, unhealthy people where they try to do everything right. They eat right. They've done everything they can to try to mitigate issues themselves, but then something's just not right. And so a lot of people, they eat tons of whole foods. They don't eat enough. So they have chronic, chronic stress, putting a damper on the liver. And then with a chronic gut bug, you're putting a damper on the liver with the aldehyde production. So if you were to just wipe everything all at once, your liver is already at a disadvantage of getting rid of all this stuff. You, you throw too much at it with a giant broad spectrum of all these things. It, it can overwhelm the liver. It can overwhelm the liver, even if there's just one herb that you do where you have to support it with niacinamide or, or molybdenum or uh, all those things. Um, so Specifically with, to bring this full circle, with appendicitis, uh, when it comes to die-off reactions, I, ever since that experience and what I've heard and kind of tying those things, things together, I am conscious of how much I throw at a patient at once when it comes to killing off gut bugs and then dealing with the byproducts accordingly. So then that way we aren't overwhelming the system and leading to something as significant as eating a surgery for appendicitis. I would rather people preserve the extra microbiome that's housed there and deal with it naturally rather than 
having to totally eliminate it and be susceptible to issues in the future. Um, so that, that took a lot uh, through um, regarding abdominal pain. Uh, everything was pretty quick and then the appendicitis really, really took a minute. So um, do you have anything else to add to that, Dr. Joel? No, you're good. You're good. No, that was great. Um, and, you know, I guess one of the things, you know, with my experience with abdominal pains, I would say um, there's a lot of different conditions that, you know, we've seen in the medical textbooks, we've learned from in school, um, a lot of the different conditions you mentioned. Um, you know, one other one that came to mind real quick was kind of like a mesenteric lymphadenitis, uh, which essentially anytime you have inflammation in a lymph node, it's important to understand that it just means your infection or your immune system is fighting some kind of infection. Uh, there may be poor lymphatic flow, things like that. So, um, I have a lot of patients that will have lymph node issues and it's like, well, let's remember that's part of our immune system. And so there's something going on there, but all of these different conditions, um, among all of these, a lot of times there's abdominal pain that um, doesn't fall into any of these categories. And uh, for that abdominal pain, that can be very tricky for most um, most doctors and most uh, health professionals to, to kind of assess and address those issues. Um, I would say that's where understanding that these infections can play such a huge part in things is so important because in, uh, essentially you can have an infection in any part of the digestive tract and it can cause pain and wherever that area is at. So um, it's just kind of important to, to keep that in mind in the, in the big scheme of things. So I think that's really the only thing I needed to add there. Um, but yeah, you, you did great with that. Um, so uh, Dr. Tim, I'm gonna pass these next, next ones on to you as well here. Uh, walk us through um, just kind of bleeding issues, issues with bleeding and gut health and, and what you see a lot of the times there and, and what your thought process is. So bleeding isn't something that's incredibly common as far as people that walk into my office go. Um, one, one thing that we pay attention to when bleeding is figuring out where is it coming from, uh, how to even identify that there is bleeding going on, as well as what to do about it. So um, at least with digestive tract bleeding, in order to differentiate where it's at in the digestive tract, uh, for those listening at home that think there might be bleeding going on, pay attention to the color of your stool. So um, when there is an upper GI bleed, maybe from an ulcer, uh, a stomach ulcer, a duodenal ulcer, there will be something called uh, occult blood in your stool, where as the blood itself breaks down throughout the digestive tract, the hemoglobin won't be bright red anymore. It breaks down to almost like a black color. When that happens, your stool will turn black. And so your stool will look very black and tarry. Um, it's it, it, within the, uh, you know, actual medical, uh, description of that. It's called, uh, Melina uh, or Malia Melina. Yeah. Melina, I think, Melina, I think you're right. Melina. Um, so if you wanted to look that up, I, I suggest not looking at pictures, but that is the, uh, the term for an upper GI bleed leading to blood in the stool called, being a cult blood where it's, it's not readily apparent. It's just kind of like a black tarry stool, uh, is what the, the Molina, uh, is. Um, so then that's, that's an upper GI bleed. Whenever it's a lower GI bleed where the body isn't really, or the digestive tract is really digesting and breaking down that blood. Um, that's where we call it Frank blood, where it's just, it's there, uh, where you can see red streaks, um, on the outside of your stool or just blood, you know, in, in the toilet afterwards. Um, all that would be considered frank blood. And whenever there is a bleed of the uh, like lower small intestine or, or large intestine, 
that's that's when that can occur. Um, things like uh, perforations or diverticulitis um, doesn't happen all that often, but that can lead to that. One of the biggest things that will lead to that though is, is hemorrhoids. Um, hemorrhoids are, are often the result of chronic inflammation leading to uh, tissue integrity being a little bit decreased. And then from there, excess straining, all that stuff. Um, increase abdominal pressure, trying to force things through that aren't ready, uh, which is the result or the symptom after usually some sort of constipation issue like gallbladder issues, motility issues from neurotransmitters, all that stuff. So a um, few different ways to go about uh, the bleeding. Uh, if it's an upper GI bleed, you have to deal with the ulcers that are going on and, and handle that. If it's a lower GI bleed, typically you deal with the inflammatory component that is driving the lack of tissue integrity and help with tissue repair through essential fatty acids and, and other really good uh, antioxidants. Um, and then from there, make sure that you're not straining and deal with gallbladder health to help everything move through smoother um, and just kind of take your time with that stuff and, and really not, not try to try to be gentle on the digestive tract is essentially how I should say it. Um, don't do anything that would be too aggressive and abrasive like binders, all those things. Um, essential fatty acids, antioxidants, all that stuff. And then uh, if there is external bleeding and, and things like that, that is really downstream due to the hemorrhoids and stuff. Um, there are some, um, you know, topical things like coconut oil and other, other things that you could do to help mitigate the, the pain with that, as well as provide like a little bit of an antimicrobial barrier um, that'll help the healing process. Um, but anything else to contribute to that, Dr. Joel, I think? I think that about sums it up with bleeding. Yeah, no, yep, you summed it up well. Um, again, a lot of those issues, obviously, you have to figure out what's what's driving it in general, if it's um, some kind of peptic ulcer in that upper GI or if it's some kind of issue in the lower GI, um, you want to figure that out. I would say, you know, at times when, um, when patients will come in with these bleeding issues, um, you always have to kind of proceed with caution, right, because you want to make sure that there's no – uh, significant kind of tumor or some kind of issue with the colon. Um, so sometimes you have to kind of investigate that a little bit, but a lot of times these issues simply come from some kind of toxicity issue from medication or supplement they're taking too much of, um, inflammation in general, infections, things like that. So um, I would say that's that's kind of my framework with when approaching those things. Um, Dr. Tim, uh, a lot of patients uh, worry about issues with gluten and uh you know obviously there's a difference between a sensitivity and an allergy uh, the sensitivity which may co cause more inflammation the allergy which is you know a very significant um issue where usually you're going to have um a lot of swelling you might have a lot of significant pain things like that um, and a lot of people are concerned about celiac disease um share a little bit about celiac disease and and kind of what you see with a lot of those issues Celiac disease is, I don't want to say it's tricky, but it is the autoimmune component with, with the gluten that, that is a big issue. Um, it is, it, there is undoubtedly disruption of the microbiome, all that stuff that goes on where we have to go about it with the herbs, antimicrobials, um, essential fatty acids, other gut health things. A lot of times the secretory IgA nutrients to help build up that mucosal barrier of the gut. Um, a lot of times people just need to stay away from gluten, unfortunately. Um, there's some theories that it's the, the glyphosate content here in the United States is what causes it to be issues with people here. Um, 
you know, with gluten intolerance becoming more and more prevalent, uh, there's, there's always things that we should be thinking about of why, why is it getting worse for people? You know, um, I've heard where people go over to Europe and they, they eat gluten there and they have no issue because they don't use glyphosate over there. Um, but then they come back home and issues resume. So, um, one of those things where you can help support the gut, you can help, um, deal with any other IBS type symptoms with it, but celiac disease specifically, um, a lot of times people just do better when they stay off of it. I'd say out of the, uh, there's a handful of things that have been a lot of times just home runs when people stay away, if that's the root of their issue, every now and then somebody has something that they just don't like and their body just doesn't like. And with those with celiac, it is, it is gluten. Um, but if you deal with the other things, uh, with the gut inflammation and all that, they can usually tolerate other things better as well. Um, because if the gut integrity isn't great, there's going to be other issues and sensitivities to other foods just because the leaky gut and increased immune function going on. So, uh, there's going to be other issues. So if you help calm that down, things like lactose, casein, um, all the, th all the things in dairy, um, as well as other grains like corn or maybe in coffee, soy, nightshades, all that stuff won't or shouldn't cause as many issues. Um, same goes with other foods. If there's, if there's a one food that, you know, really, really, really bugs you, we can't necessarily say that we can get you to the point where you're never going to have issues with it. It just might be your Achilles heel where, um, if you get rid of that one, all the other things might, might kind of resolve where that's your, that's your weakest link, uh, where we can do things to help build up everything else. But, um, every now and then there is one thing that you have to have to just do without. And gluten is one of those with those with celiac, that that's the case a lot of times. It's the harsh reality of uh, life in the 21st century. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Dr. Tim, remind me you're, you're fully gluten-free. Uh, yeah, I, I do better without it. I don't have celiac disease, um, but got some sensitivities and stuff. So um, yeah. got autoimmune condition and things like that that I'm constantly uh, trying to keep at bay, um, try to handle stress and other inflammatory things that will be contributing to it. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, whenever there is something like that present, you can get to a point of, uh, remission, but there are things that will provoke things will, will provoke symptoms again. So, um, gluten is one of those things that will provoke things. And so I, I try to do my best to stay away. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, it's funny because, um, I think maybe from the listener's perspective, right? We we talk all about health. We live this health thing out all the time. We help people with these health issues. And, uh, you know, it's important to remember that the doctors are also people too that may have their own different little health challenges and things like that. And I would say, uh, you know, probably one of the biggest things that uh, can impact our health is probably the amount of work and the time and effort that we put into literally helping other people. <laughs> and helping other patients and things like that. And it can, uh, you know, we've got to make sure to take care of ourselves for sure. So um, I'm, I'm personally, uh, for the most part, gluten-free. I will, um, you know, I, I tend to do better with sprouted grains, um, uh, sourdough, things like that. Um, but if I get too much of that as well, without, um, you know, other of the, you know, right nutrients to help balance out the gut and, and increase the diversity and so forth, um, then I can run into some issues that, again, uh, you know, over time. But this whole conversation kind of goes back to what we talk about a lot, which is, uh, you know, tolerance. Like how much can our system handle? And 
everybody is on a different um, place on that whole spectrum where a lot of people are super resilient to where they, um, you know, they can eat whatever foods they want, gluten, all these different things for weeks and have no issues. Uh, eventually, you know, it will catch up with people. But, um, uh, you know, it's all about building, building resilience and, and building tolerance with our gut health so that we can enjoy the foods that we want to enjoy and eat the foods um, maybe that we shouldn't every once in a while. But, you know, for celebration and different things like that, it's, it's good to have some tolerance. So, um, all right, Dr. Tim, that's the, the gluten allergy, celiac disease topic. Um, I'm trying to think there was something else that I wanted to mention. What was it? Um, I, I've had some celiac patients before. And um, one thing that I'll, I'll note is, yes, they usually test as having a sensitivity issue, uh, an allergy issue with gluten. Um, but they usually will also have a, some form of a huge inflammatory response with the gut and, and that autoimmune response, which, you know, when we talk about um, autoimmune conditions, we have to address the trigger successfully. Um, so obviously, in this case, avoiding gluten, and then I'll share in just a little bit kind of detoxing gluten, how you can go about that and what that looks like to help kind of speed up that process. Um, but usually there's a, a component that's needed to help rebalance the immune system and kind of calm it down and help control it better. So usually there's some different nutrients and different things that can help with that with, um, different celiac cases. So, um, all right, that's awesome. All right, Dr. Tim, anything else to add to that? Um, uh, if not, uh, let's jump into some of our favorite gut health foods. Okay. Nothing else to add there. Um, but I'll take it from here with the foods for a little bit. Um, so when it comes to foods for the gut health, uh, this might come as a surprise, but grass-fed butter is great for it. Um, we always talk about uh, essential fatty acids, things like that. Um, one of the best forms of anti-inflammatory fats that you can get from animal foods is grass-fed meats and the arachidonic acid that comes from that, uh, as well as you know from the, the butter as well. Uh, fish oil um, through uh, good wild-caught fish is, is great. Um, other foods, uh, could be things like, uh, organic, uh, not covered in pesticides, vegetables. Um, so one thing that I want to add there is, um, so a lot of people, they will recommend that you need to have like a big wide diversity of different vegetables. That way your microbiome can, can have all these things that can eat and it can really, really grow well. Well, if you think back to when we mentioned FODMAPs, or when Dr. Joel mentioned that, FODMAPs are uh, ferment fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides. Um, monosaccharides and polyols. And polyols, yes, exactly. Polyols, yeah. So that is essentially, me. what that means is short-chain sugars that your microbiome can interact with and drive gas. Um, so all of these vegetables are going to be really, really full of those things. Well, if you've got some sort of gut issue, why would you eat those to help a gut issue? So that's where it's this is this debate of, okay, if you if you see your gut as a garden and you have all of your really nice crops, you've got your corn, you've got your potatoes, you've got your, you know, your zucchinis, your cucumbers, tomatoes, all the stuff that you're growing, um, you want to fertilize those. But if there's a bunch of weeds grown in between there and all the different rows, why would you put fertilizer on there before you pull the weeds? And maybe, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a gardener, so um, I, I guess I, I don't have the expertise to know if that's actually something that you should do. But the analogy um, that I've learned from uh, some other people is that if 
you're trying to heal the gut, you need to pull the weeds first because we don't want to put anything on there that could make the weeds even worse. Um, and with the case mm. of a good variety of uh, vegetables and indigestible fiber and all that stuff, um, it's very, very good for good microbiome function uh, as well as essential fatty acid production. But if there is an overgrowth there, it can be counterintuitive. So the reason that it's really good, so there's this uh, essential fatty acid, it's called butyric acid. Uh, there's only two places you can get it from. The first place being from dairy products. And so if you have an issue with dairy and you avoid that a lot, then you can only get it one other place. And that's through these indigestible fibers that when your um, your microbiome digests it, digests it, um, it will produce butyric acid that your body can then use. And so say you avoid dairy and then you don't get a wide variety of veggies. Well, guess what? You're going to be deficient butyric acid inherently. You just, it's, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when it starts to become an issue. So you can find ways that dairy can work for you. Oh, or just eat, uh, eat a wide variety of, of good, uh, good vegetables, green leafy vegetables, and just eat all, all different kinds. Um, all right. I think that's enough for me for foods. What about you, Dr. Joel? What are, what are some ones that you really love? That's awesome. Yeah, I, I absolutely am with you on the grass-fed butter and the grass-fed beef. Those are amazing for you and have so many nutrients that you can't get anywhere else. A um, couple of my favorite foods I would say is probably raw milk. I'm a huge fan of raw milk, cow's milk, A2 milk, uh, goat milk as well. And, um, you know, it's interesting. You can't usually find a lot of that um, in stores. Uh, I've had like very little success with finding in stores. So you usually have to find a local farmer that, that has, um, that has that. And, um, uh, there's a lot of different benefits I think with raw milk, but I think one of the massive benefits with raw milk is that the presence of enzymes and those enzymes are otherwise burned up and destroyed when the majority of the milk that we have in stores today goes through the pasteurization process. Um, there's kind of a lot in that, a lot behind that, why they do that and things like that. But ultimately I think the way that God designed things, I think our cows need to be healthy. I think they don't need to be jacked up on grains. I don't think they need to be vaccinated. They need to be able to roam. They need to be, uh, um, having, you know, plenty of space and be free of antibiotics and all these different things. And when those cows are healthy, they'll have healthy milk and, uh, that healthy milk doesn't need to be pasteurized because it's, uh, it's healthy. It's not at risk for different infections and things like that. And, there's tons of enzymes. So that's my kind of personal take on that. I've found um, uh, raw milk to be just an excellent source of nutrition uh, personally and, and for patients. And um, I would say I've even found that some people will have a sensitivity to dairy, to casein, but when I test them on raw milk, they're fine. They have no issues with it. And so I, I think that part of that goes back to the number one, raw milk has a presence of enzymes, which helps with overall digestion and things like that. Um, but then number two, I would say, you know, the majority of dairy that people are getting is, is going to be the processed stuff. And so it's just a way different ball game when it's, when it's processed and pasteurized and all that stuff. So raw milk, huge fan of raw milk. Um, I do like some of the different fermentable foods, sauerkraut I'll eat every once in a while. Um, I do like some sauerkraut. Um, I know kombucha, a lot of people love kombucha and talk about kombucha. Kombucha can be good. Um, but usually what I find is, you know, you drink kombucha, you know, daily, you know, sometimes weekly, things like that. Um, it can result in bacterial kind of buildups, different overgrowth type issues and, and lead to other issues. So, um, generally, you know, if you find that probiotics and kombucha help you, 
I would keep in mind what Dr. Tim just mentioned, which is, you know, you want to take out the, um, you want to essentially take out the weeds, right? So you want to take care of the infections um, before kind of going in and supporting like the probiotics and the bacteria and things like that. And oftentimes what I'll find is, you know, we take care of the infections and we balance out the gut health that way. We kind of take out the weeds, um, you know, gut health and digestion improves and people don't even need a probiotic. So um, uh, one thing while we're on kind of the, the probiotic topic, um, you know, a lot of times people will find a lot of benefit with probiotics. I think the reason why is because if you have um, imbalances in the gut to where you have different infections or different overgrowths, um, and the good bacteria essentially is low in comparison. Um, I know this, this, uh, kind of analogy is very vague, but, um, if the good stuff is essentially low, you add probiotics, that's going to help with that balance of things. Um, but the problem is, you know, if here is normal, you could have bad be all the way up here and then you could have good be all the way up here, which they're both too high. And so in general, when it comes to really good health, you need to make sure that the infections and overall the overgrowth and things like that, that's normal. And then um, when you get that in the first place, a lot of times you don't even need a probiotic because your gut is, is balanced. So um, if you have to take a probiotic in order to have improved gut health and digestion and you notice um, symptoms return after stopping the probiotic, I would say you probably got some different infections there that you need to take care of. So, uh, so the raw milk, uh, fermentable foods, uh, sauerkraut's one of my favorite ones. Um, I, I would say, um, that the grass fed butter, grass fed beef, I would say of all those, those are probably like my, my top few favorites there. Um, you know, we could go on and on with lists of foods that are good for gut health and we, we probably should here at some point, but, uh, we'll, we'll kind of cap it there at our, our favorite ones. So, um, Dr. Tim, anything else to add there? Otherwise let's go through some of these common questions that we get from patients in regards to gut health. Okay. Um, I think we're good on that. So let's just hit up those questions. Sweet, um, sweet. First question uh, we got on our list here is, should everyone take a probiotic? And I think Dr. Joel just mentioned that and just covered that. So uh, think of it, anything that's fermentable foods or fermented foods like kimchi, sauerkraut, uh, yogurt, um, kombucha, all those things that are supposedly re doing really, really good for our gut. They have all these probiotics that are supposed to be really good for us. But like he just said, if there's too much good and too much bad, or even just too much good, it's too much. And so these are things mm -hmm. that should be consumed sort of. Uh, same goes with probiotic. If your, if your microbiome is balanced, uh, you really shouldn't need a probiotic. The, the analogy that I like to use in my patients, because a lot of them, for some reason, like to make sourdough. Um, I have done that. But, uh, that's, getting, that's getting more and more popular where uh, people make their own sourdough and they have their sourdough starters. And uh, so it requires the yeast. The yeast will, will feed on the sugar and uh, will produce gas, which is what makes it all fluffy. Uh, that's what happens with bread is the yeast produces gas, makes it all fluffy and, you know, just how bread is. Um, think of the yeast in that the same as your gut microbiome. As soon as it's got a good environment where it's got plenty of food, it's warm, it's dark, it will permeate. It permeates quickly. You don't need to just hammer your system with probiotics to get your back where it needs to be. You just need to get the bad stuff out of there. That's that's overwhelming majority of the time. That's all it takes is getting rid of the bad stuff 
And then from there, it will balance accordingly. Um, so my, my take on the probiotic is no. No, everyone should not take one. I, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. I don't think everybody should be taking a probiotic um, for all the reasons we just mentioned. I think if you take a probiotic and find benefit, that's great, but I wouldn't take it that long. Uh, some people love to take probiotics long-term. I would say, um, you know, number one, that's not a good idea, but I would say number two, if that's something that you were going to do, you would at least want to switch the probiotic out, you know, every few weeks so that you're not getting the same thing every single day and every single week. So um, that's the the topic on probiotics there. Um, how about kombucha? A lot of patients love to drink kombucha. Should patients be, should people be drinking kombucha daily? I, I would argue no. Same, same for, you know, the reasons with the probiotics. I would say it's beneficial for you to do every once in a while, but you start drinking it daily, you're just going to be adding a ton of bacteria and causing uh, potentially even other imbalances. So that's a no for me. What about you, Tim? Also a no. Um, I used to actually... For about a year and a half, I drank kombucha every single morning. Most part, wow. every single morning, um, I was addicted. That that stuff is delicious when you get the right flavors that you like and good brands. Um, so I totally understand those people who want to drink it every single day because it, you know, you think about it, it's this tasty, um, sweet, carbonated tea um, that supposedly has some really good health benefits. So why not? Um, but yeah. just like the same reasoning as the probiotic should be doing it every day. For sure. For sure. Um, Dr. Tim, uh, a lot of patients will ask about parasite cleanses. Um, parasites are really big in the functional medicine world. A lot of doctors talking about them, which is good. Um, but uh, I'll have patients that ask, hey, should we do a yearly parasite cleanse, a bi-yearly cleanse and that kind of thing? Um, I'll share with, uh, I'll share my thoughts and also what I do personally. So I, I think the answer is no, ultimately. But I think a lot of it revolves around the actual state of your gut health. So um, a lot of people, I think I, I might have mentioned this in the past episode, but I think probably 90% plus of people do have some type of parasite issue. A lot of that has not only to do with the, not necessarily to do with the present presence of parasites, but also to do with the overall um, gut microbiome and, and just the overall environment that produces um, a place for parasites to kind of um, just kind of flourish essentially. Um, but I, I think, you know, when it comes to the gut health, I think if you address parasites successfully and other in, different issues that are going on with the gut health and you can actually heal the gut, then I don't think you're, you know, as long as you maintain good nutrition and so forth, I don't think you're going to get parasite infections again. Um, and so that's, that's what I've seen in, in my health. That's what I've seen with a lot of the patients that I work with as far as gut health issues go, uh, where we address it successfully you know, the first time essentially, then as long as nutrition as well, you know, we don't have to worry about getting parasites later. Um, I would say the only, uh, the only risk, the only, um, outlier with that is if you eat some kind of, um, uh, you know, you get some kind of food poisoning, um, some kind of food that's gone bad, that kind of thing, um, that can kind of flare issues up too, which, um, again, with the right herb, it's, it's very easy to address. But, uh, Dr. Tim, do you have any other thoughts to add to that as far as yearly or bi-yearly parasite cleanses? Uh, short answer is no. Long answer is if you are going to worry about doing something like that every six months to a year, just talk to your doc about it. Um, try to find somebody in your area who does stuff like we do. Uh, and with the risks of doing that, I mean, they're not crazy, but if you experience a die off reactions, things like that, um, 
going back to the appendix stuff, I, I personally just wouldn't want to do any sort of parasite cleanse with all the hard hitting things like clove, um, black pepper, oregano, all those things all at once, just to just ramp up any sort of aldehyde issue that can really make you not feel good and lead to some issues. So um, if you're worried about something every six months or so, um, I mean, stuff happens, life happens. That's that's why you, you know find somebody that you like working with that takes care of you and then you know get sorted out. And then whenever there's an issue, once you're good, just, just come on back and be hopefully quick. Um, but long story short, no. Just work with somebody you trust and have them check you every six months to a year if you'd like. And a lot of times, if you deal with it in the first place, you won't have anything. It'll probably save some money than all the crap you could take that could lead to some issues. Yep, yep, for sure. And we'll chat about um, the die-off reactions. I want to touch on that in just a second here. Um, but let's chat about stool tests real quick. A lot of patients say, okay, what about stool tests? What stool tests do you recommend and how accurate are they? Um, my two cents, and then, and then I want to hear yours, Dr. Tim. I mentioned the GI map a little bit earlier and the gut zoomer. Those are two tests I've been fairly impressed with. Uh, there's a number of other tests that I'm honestly not too excited about. Um, as far as that goes, I, I rely on the, the neurological testing, the muscle testing anyways, um, because I just found just amazing success and accuracy with that. But if you want to do a stool test, I would say the GI map or gut zoomers probably one to, to look into. Um, how accurate are gut and stool tests? I would say um, it obviously depends on the test. I would say generally they can be really good for bacteria. I would say their weakest link is probably catching parasite issues. And then I would say on top of that, I would say I, I don't usually find that they pick up a lot of uh, like fungal issues unless they're like very severe. So um, that's my two cents on that. Dr. Tim, what do you think about any gut stool tests that you like uh, in general and um, how how accurate do you do you feel like they are? Um, I'm most familiar with the GI map, and uh, it's I mean it's not bad as far as stool temp samples go. Um, my response to everybody asks about that is I mean obviously we're biased. You know we we do the AK, we do the applied kinesiology, and do things based off of symptoms as well as the neurologic indicators, and people get better mm -hmm. without having to one spend the money on the tests and two get that uh, issue catastrophization where um, they see that they might let it light up like a Christmas tree. They've got all these bacterial fungal parasite issues and they're like, Oh my God, how am I ever going to fix this? Do I need to take antibiotics? Do I need to go to my, you know, gastroenterologist? Uh, all those things. And they get all frantic about it. Um, when in all reality, if your body is not reacting to it, is it really that big of a deal? Um, so what we do when we go through and check stuff is is there information is tenderness all those things that are nice objective measures then we get into the neurologic stuff where okay are these valves dysfunctional um what sort of organs are involved um and then from there once we kind of have a, a baseline of where to go and we go with the herbs if things are doing better uh bowel movements are more regular symptoms of overgrowth parasites all those things resolve um does it really matter if the test is showing to be clear or not? Um, because if the body isn't reacting to it, it's not really doing any harm in my opinion. So um, it's kind of the, the chicken or the egg. Is it, is it your immune system or is it your large or your, your digestive tract that's having the issue? Um, Cause you could be overreacting to normal amounts of stuff, but you also be, hyper, I'm sorry, 
uh, you could also have a lot of stuff in there that you're not reacting to. So um, that's where I'm, I'm kind of biased the way that we do things. Yep. Yep. I'm with you hundred percent. So, uh, all right. So let me touch on these, uh, these die off reactions. I know a lot of docs, um, Dr. Tim, by the way, this is going to be our longest podcast, but I think it's probably one of our best. It's awesome. Uh, so good much good information. What's that? Good thing we split two episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the listener, I was kind of hesitant with that. I was wanting to get it all into one episode, but that's a little bit, uh, unrealistic because, because we don't have to <laughs> what was that? Absolutely unrealistic. Yes. Yeah, 100%. So uh, with die-off reactions, so a lot of doctors will recommend different herbs and, and protocols with things in, uh, in an attempt to kill these infections and balance out the gut health. A lot of times people can experience what's called die-off reactions. That's where you have these, basically these negative symptoms. Maybe, um, maybe you have different skin flare-ups. Maybe you have some kind of pain. Maybe you don't sleep well, different things like that. Um, personally, my personal belief, which I feel uh, is extremely accurate just from my um, experience working with a bunch of patients, is that Herxheimer reactions, these die-off reactions, are not, not good. And uh, essentially what it means is that in some form or fashion, one of the things that you're taking is bad for you. So if you're taking the exact nutrients that you need, whether they're herbs, vitamins, or minerals, you should have zero side effects. Your body should receive it well, it should use it, and you shouldn't have any negative symptoms. Um, that's my personal belief with things. Um, and I, I think a lot of other colleagues uh, would kind of agree with me on that. But um, if you're taking different supplements and you're having the, all these die-off reactions, there's something there that your body is not, it's not liking. It's, it's something your body's not resonating with, whether it means the dosage is wrong, you're taking too much of something, or maybe the herb or nutrient is just not what you need at all. Um, or maybe even it's just a bad brand and it's got some different impurities in it and things like that. So um, you can obviously have different nutrients interacting with another nutrient that you're taking and cause these different issues. So lots of different things to take, uh, take into consideration. And again, I think that's why Dr. Tim and I so often recommend, hey, find a good holistic doc that does the different types of um, just like muscle testing, apply kinesiology and, and make sure you're working with someone that you that you, you know, that can help you. So, um, Herxheimer reactions, Dr. Tim, anything else to add to that? I think you covered it. I, uh, I kind of touched on the aldehyde component a bit previously, um, that I kind of have this theory that that's involved. And a lot of times what people will feel issues with, but I, I yeah. definitely resonate with the, uh, you're experiencing negative symptoms due to something bad that you're taking. I've had where patients react negatively to some sort of herb. Uh, once you introduce it every now and then stuff just doesn't go as planned. Um, and you just got to be able to figure that out and, and work through it and find something that does work well. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, um, what else was I going to add to that? I don't know. It'll come back to me. Um, all right. So let's jump into this. A lot of patients say, Hey, um, you know, I'm new to talking about gut health, uh, but I'm interested in the natural side of things. I want to learn more. Where should I start? So a great starting place, for anybody and everybody, as far as wanting to improve gut health, I think it needs to start with your nutrition. I think you need to start eating whole foods. I think you need to make sure that you're getting good quality foods um, and, um, and you know, really avoiding all the processed stuff. I, I would say that's just a very general rule, but I think that's very important. I'd say number two, you need to be doing the three meals a day, uh, four to five hours in between with no snacking. Um, 
we've talked about that a lot before with blood sugar, with inflammation, things like that, but we haven't necessarily mentioned kind of the underlying component with the gut. There's something called the migrating motor complex. Essentially, it's this process where when you eat food and it goes through your intestines, it takes roughly um, an hour, I believe, uh, or roughly about two hours for kind of the food to process through. After that, your gut undergoes this kind of self-cleansing, self-healing process that can last about um, roughly, you know, an hour or two hours after that. So what that means is if you eat, you want to give your gut at least two hours to kind of digest, process that food and kind of move it through. And then after that, you want to give it more time so it can kind of do this self-cleansing, self-healing process. So that's why a lot of times I'll tell patients, you want to go two hours after you eat, and then you, that's when the cleansing starts. So you don't want to eat. You want to go then two more or three more hours, and then you want to eat again. Whenever we eat, it stops that cleansing process. So that's why it's really important. Um, some patients, they love to snack. Um, there's a couple of reasons I think why. One is you're bored. And I think if you're snacking because you're bored, you just really need to have more discipline. Um, and then number two, I think some people will snack because they're hungry. I think if you're snacking because you're hungry, I think essentially you're not eating enough in your meals. You need to eat more protein and more fats and and not be afraid to, to really do that. So um, that's kind of my take on, on the, the nutrition side. Uh, as far as gut health goes, you want to make sure you're getting good sleep. You want to make sure you're getting outside and spending more time outside in the sun and in the grass. Um, you want to make sure that you're addressing stress and inflammation. Um, you want to make sure that your mind and your thoughts are right as well. And, and all of that is good and healthy. You want to make sure, um, you know, that you're, you know, spending time with community, all of those different things are important for, um, emotional health, physical health, chemical health, all these different things, and they all can impact our gut health. So you really want to take that, all those different things into consideration. Uh, Dr. Tim, anything that you would add as well for patients that just kind of want to start with improving their gut health? I think that's good. I think that's good. I think, uh, yeah, you hit it good. Um, let's move on to the uh, favorite herbs. Um, so I'll just yeah, let's do it. Just I'm looking at my shelf. Um, bunch yeah. of herbs. <laughs> bunch of herbs I can go with. Um, I'd say, depending on the issue, if it's more of a parasite issue, um, mimosa pudica seed. Um, that's, that's my highest Asia or wormwood, Chinese wormwood. That's, that's high in the list. Um, let's see, um, astragalus root. I see that fairly often, uh, neem yep. or malia for supreme nutrition. That one's, that was common. Uh, no fruit. All right. Uh, now I moved on to, uh, bacteria and fungus. Um, yeah. Malia, as well as those are also anti-parasitic as well. So I guess we could put it in there as well. Um, Bolia Marinda, um, Chinese skullcap. That's that's a good one as well. Um, that one I've actually seen a um, handful of people, not a handful, but a few people um, react to negatively, um, mm -hmm. where it's, it is a lower dose one that we do because it's so powerful. Um, yep. And so it is a bit more troublesome. And, um, let's see, what else we got? Um, Osher root, Osher root, golden seal. Um, those are really, really good. Um, and then all of your berberines, so things like uh, organ grapefruit, golden seal, golden thread. Um, some companies just offer like a berberine supplement uh, that's good for blood sugar regulation as well. Uh, those are all really, really, really good. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. There's some other ones that are really good for the neurotransmitter component, encouraging that through gut. Um, like St. John's wort is great for serotonin. Uh, flower yes. and valerian root are great for GABA. Um, 
but anyway, that's it's yeah. not necessarily the microbial part, but um, no, definitely good. great for health. Um, and there's some other things, but they don't happen as often. So if you're gonna if you're gonna base your what you're gonna do just from listening to podcasts, I would go with uh, probably Malia. I'd say top one. Anybody like broad spectrum Malia or Golden Seal? It's probably a really really good one. Cool. Nice. I would, yeah, I'll kind of break them down. I'll start with parasites. I would say for a lot of, a lot of patients that have parasite issues, I see andrographis test really well for people. Um, at times people need, um, uh, astragalus, wormwood or artemisia, sometimes black walnut for the pinworms. Um, I see actually see that a decent amount of time with leaky gut issues is a need for black walnut. Um, but I would say andrographis is a big one. Marinda is a big one. Um, and then, uh, wormwood, artemisia, which I already mentioned, and then organ grapefruit. All of those are really important. Sometimes juniper berry actually uh, can be good with some of that. A lot of people will talk about like um, like garlic. They'll talk about, um, I think I've heard people talk about um, oregano oil and um, pumpkin seeds, things like that. Personally, I'll test those on patients and I try to see if it, anybody actually tests for those things to actually kill their parasites. I never found those to test. I've never found garlic. I've never found pumpkin seeds. So it, it's all kind of interesting. Papaya, I've not found that either. So um, that's those are the top ones I, I've found the most for parasite issues. Uh, for fungus, I would definitely say the berberines, right? So your golden thread, golden seal, organ grapefruit, those are going to be the big ones. Um, Astragalus and Malia, uh, Marinda, um, all of those can be... Uh, very powerful. And then olive leaf is really big too, as well with, with some fungal stuff. Um, for bacterial issues, I would say a lot of those, uh, the similar ones with fungus, I would probably say stragalus, malia, um, illicium, which is star anise, um, olive leaf. I would probably say those are the top ones that I'll see for bacterial issues. You mentioned things like OSHA root. Um, that's, a, that's another really good one. Um, for viruses, I think it's good to kind of mention those a little bit. Uh, usually astragalus, um, elderberry is probably the top one, but I would say astragalus is a close number two. Um, sometimes we'll th see things like um, Elysium, um, cat's claw every once in a while, um, scutellaria, um, uh, different things like that. That's probably maybe the top ones for me. Zinc and selenium can generally be helpful with that as well. Um, and then, yeah, you mentioned St. John's wort, right? Helping with serotonin, that's huge, right? In order to actually heal the gut, you're going to need enough serotonin uh, to do that. And then you mentioned some things that help support the GABA and anxiety and stress. So that's all big. Uh, the only other thing that I'll mention as far as all of this goes is if, if you're looking to detox gluten from your body, you know, gluten has, I believe, I'll have to double check myself, but gluten has, I believe, a three-month half-life in your system, which means if you eat this much gluten in three months, half of it is still going to be in your system. So one of the things that I found works really, really well with that is bentonite clay. So it's not the makeup product. It's not a powder. It's a liquid uh, that kind of has like a dirt look or taste to it. Um, but essentially, you, you drink about two tablespoons for an adult um, at night before bed. And it'll, it'll basically bind to gluten and get that out of your body. Um, I've not seen anybody have a, a bad reaction to that. Um, the only thing that can happen is it can slow your bowels down if you don't drink enough water. So make sure you, you drink enough water with it so you don't get constipated. But bentonite clay, I'm a big fan. I find a lot of people that have gluten issues, they do well with that. 
and um, and it can be very helpful for some of the inflammation and just detoxing overall. So um, that's probably the last thing that that I would mention there. So, uh, Dr. Tim, uh, let's let's wrap this up. Uh, but I also want to just see if you had anything else you wanted to mention there as far as the different supplements and so forth. I think that's good to go. There, there's some other vitamins, minerals, uh, B vitamins, things like that that you wouldn't normally think are antimicrobial. But for the sake of those listening at home, um, I think we've yeah. covered enough. So. We'll leave that if uh, <laughs> nagging issues that they need help with, they can give us a call. Um, Perfect. But yeah. Anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Um, I'm Dr. Tim Augustiniak down here in Bentonville, Arkansas. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, all the things. Um, and uh, for those, those who are listening, if you are local on January 31st at 6.30 p.m. at my office, I'm doing a, a health talk. And for brand new patients. If you sign up after the health talk, we're doing 25% off the uh, treatment, your, your first visit. So um, tell your friends, tell your family, anybody who's having health issues, uh, go ahead, tell them to give me a call and uh, come on into that health talk to learn about stress and, and how it affects everything. That's awesome. Dr. Tim, you might have to uh, maybe Facebook live that one or Instagram live that one because I want to watch in too. It's going to be good. Um, I'm Dr. Joel Miller. Guys, thanks for tuning in. I'm located here in Dallas, just outside Dallas, Texas. And uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, you can find me online as well, drjoelmiller.com. You can find me on Instagram, all that stuff. Um, guys, we hope that you've enjoyed this. This is going to be part two of Gut Health. Uh, coming next, we've got a number of things we'll get into uh, as far as um, the natural health side of things goes. We're going to jump into um, hormones. We're going to jump into mold. We're going to jump into Lyme issues. So um, we look forward to having you guys. All right. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll see you guys in the next one.